0: Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and yes, some not so successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit.
1: Today we have with us Gerald Dong, an M&A advisor in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, sharing some of the truly unique stories with us that he has had in the last several years. On the podcast, we have discussed some of the concepts we'll chat about today, but in our past episodes, they have never been like the extremes that we're going to be talking about today. You really need to listen to these to see what can happen. For example, In the first story that Gerald shares is about a highly profitable business services company that has five highly qualified partners in the business handling all of the key functions of the company. These partners are committed to the business. They work 70 to 80 hours a week on the business and have done for years. One partner is the CEO, another the CFO, yet another the COO. The sales and marketing were handled by a partner as was the IT department. Yet, even though this company was highly profitable, it turned out to be unsaleable. Why, you ask? Listen in and learn why. Next, we have a $35 million tortilla company with millions in profits that couldn't be sold. Yet, Another example of critical strategic errors and mistakes that the entrepreneur made that made it literally impossible for this business to be sold. Every entrepreneur needs to learn from transactional stories like this so that you don't make the same mistakes these entrepreneurs did. You need to pay particularly close attention to several of these stories in this episode. Then we have a transaction where the wrong attorney nearly crashed the deal And only when the attorney was fired did the deal close. To wrap things up, Gerald shares how not having the right advisor on your team that can position the company to properly generate 10 offers. And when you have competition like this, the deal heats up, causing the offering price to escalate and the terms of the deal to get better for the seller. You'll learn when you have multiple offers, Your position in negotiating is enhanced as the profit and deal terms can get better and better and what you need to do to create this type of situation. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today we're here with Gerald Kong. Gerald, would you take a few minutes and talk a little bit about your company, where you're located and maybe just a brief mention on your background. And then we're going to dive right in and talk a little bit about some of the transactions you've been involved in over your career, which I guess spans several decades. And I'm sure that the stories you're going to share today will have a lot of relevance for those that are listening in as they think about positioning their companies for an eventual successful and profitable exit. So Gerald, talk a little bit about who you are and where you're located.
2: Well, hopefully stories story is helpful to your listeners, and, and uh, thanks again, Marvin, for having having me on your show. Uh, I'm in the Dallas-Fort Worth metropolitan area here in Texas. Um, I spent the first 12 years of my career in the public sector pensions market, running insurance companies. I was a an insurance executive um, for a number of years, um, and as a result of my role got involved in some corporate level mergers and acquisitions. I loved it. Uh, I got to a point where we were about to have our first child and and, I just about had it with the traveling and wanted to get out of the insurance industry and said, what am I going to do? And I said, man, I really like that M&A stuff. That was a a blast. And I think that's what I'll do. So I I jumped into it uh, uh, almost 20 years ago now. Uh, So I've got some corporate M&A experience and now about 20 years experience uh, in the private sector doing uh, lower middle market uh, M&A, sell side M&A transactions.
1: Why don't you just share with our audience a little bit here about when you say lower middle market, what kind of range does that generally on the low end as well as up to the kind of the high end?
2: You know, um... When I look at my definition of lower middle market might be a little different than than others in that I look at it more at at the style of transaction and and, and the target acquisition targets. So you could have companies that are um, doing 2 million in revenues and still be targeted by as considered a lower middle market. Uh, As long as all the acquisition attributes are in line, their EBITDA is solid, and they have to be targeted by a strategic or even private equity group.
1: So in that situation, what would be the high end then?
2: High end, maybe a couple hundred million would be the high end on a a lower middle market. But but typically five million and up is where we're at.
1: Okay. Well, that gives us, you know, the audience some type of reference point when they look at their own company and saying, you know, kind of where am I in this spectrum of smaller businesses that would be considered Main Street to lower mid-market to higher mid-market. And then you get into investment banking and other types of transactions that tend to be of a much larger scale. So, in talking about some of these type of transactions that you've been involved in, Gerald, why don't we jump in and talk a little bit about a transaction or two that you've been involved in that kind of presented its own special types of challenges that, you know, may have worked out, may didn't work out. Just kind of talk a little bit about how you engage those clients that you work with and kind of what happened in that process.
2: Okay. Sounds great. Well, um we've picked out four deals that we, we hopefully can get into the, the podcast and uh, t- two of them that I'd like to talk about it really has more to do with what doesn't work in the marketplace. So we, we, as you and I discussed earlier, there's, there's about 15 different acquisition criteria that we measure before we determine whether we think a business is ready to go to market or not. So um so, I, I, so, the first couple of stories, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, a couple of deals that didn't quite cut the mustard to go to market.
1: Well, that's interesting. When you say didn't quite cut the mustard, this mean that in your discussion or the preliminary discussions as you're talking about the companies that these entrepreneurs owned, uh, you went through a process of talking a little bit about... Maybe they were ready, or maybe not really ready, or some other criteria that you found that really didn't fit. Well,
2: we have a feasibility analysis that we perform on every every potential client before we agree to an engagement, and and so we measure these fifteen attributes and we score it. And as a team, we decide whether we think this business will actually sell or if it's not going to sell. And so we look at some of these attributes and we you know. It, These are the same attributes that a buyer, an acquirer, will measure before they'll decide whether they're going to pull the trigger or not. We've talked to enough buyers. We know what they're looking for. Um, And and so these are the same metrics that a buyer will probably look at before they decide whether they're going to pull the trigger. And I think these are important because as a business owner, someone needs to sit down with... The business owner and be candid with them and tell them, look, I don't think you're going to sell, and here's the reasons why.
1: So, in these transactions that you're going to share with us here today, what was the big red flag or something? It sounds like that's where we're going here is that there was uh, something that you identified early in this process that stood out that may make it a challenge for a buyer to even be interested in the business.
2: Correct. Well, let's take a look at the first one. We we came across a business services. Company. They were B two B business services. They uh, they had a, they were about a twenty eight thirty million dollar company. Where we met with
1: them. Well, for a business services company, that's a fairly large company, right? I mean, when you say business services, is that meaning consulting or what? What does business services actually mean?
2: Well, they actually had a portfolio of different services, which included uh, they did some business consulting. They had some hardware. They did some IT infrastructure and IT consulting. So they had sort of a portfolio of package. What they did was they kind of found some pain points that were small business owners had in terms of taking their business to the next level. and So they said, well, if we provide this package of services. We can help. These business owners take their business to another level. Now, you know, if they had to go and farm out all these different services from different companies, you know, they, they probably couldn't afford it. So, so we'll we'll come in and we can kind of be their jack of all trades in terms of providing multiple services that can help them elevate their their company. So, so we came across these guys uh, through a business lead.
1: When you say guys, was it a partnership or how many people were involved in the owner actual? organization or ownership position okay
2: so they were they were actually um an llc um that had five business partners
1: so five equity holders
2: five equity holders they were growing double digits every year it, it looked like a really good company on paper um they had a, a decent client base now they, they had a little bit of client concentration issues in other words a couple of their clients were pretty pretty good size and it took up a, a large portion of their client um, distribution. But, but the biggest problem that they had um, was that all five partners were heavily engaged in the process of operating the business. And I'm talking 40, 50, 60 hours a week. One of the partners was a CEO. One of the partners was a CFO. One of the partners was the sales and marketing vice president. Uh, One of the partners was a operations manager.
1: Well, isn't that normally a good thing where you have equity partners really rolling up their sleeves and working in the business?
2: Well, when we're dealing with private businesses, uh, these are closely held businesses. And the problem with being this closely held is that if you extract these business owners out of the equation, you really don't have much of a business left. In other words, the rudder was the CEO. The CFO was the financial guidance. The sales and marketing vice president held all the contacts. Right. Uh, the operations manager was the kind of the glue that made, <laughs> made the operations run. And you took these guys out of the equation. What are you selling? And, and what company would actually want to buy you
1: so, what was really the motivation behind selling? Then sounds like they're doing well. Were these guys in their sixties and seventies, or how old were they?
2: These were pretty young guys. Uh, most of them were in their, I would say, mid to late thirties. Um, I think one of them was in their forties, and then you have one silent partner that was probably in his fifties or sixties.
1: When you say they were, their motivation was just to sell. So. They didn't kind of want to stick around. I mean, they are the glue. They are the all the pistons in the engine pumping away every day. And they decided they wanted to sell and they wanted to close the sale and the next day be gone. Well,
2: they wanted an exit. Yeah, they wanted to exit. You know, they were going to provide a little bit of transition support. But but like you said, if you take all the pistons out of the, out of the engine, right, what do you have? You just have a big block, right? So... So that's what um, that was. What concerned us. The other thing that concerned us a little bit was, you know, in the process of doing our evaluation of a company and trying to determine whether they were a match for us, one of the things we try to get a feel for is the motivation. And and you know, these these guys, one of the things we didn't we didn't really appreciate was it sounded like these guys wanted to to get their money and run, and then you know. They just didn't, it didn't seem like they cared whether the new ownership was going to be successful or not. And uh, what we have found is the best deals always has a component of where the ownership is trying to set up the the new owners for success. And that's evident typically as they go through the due diligence process.
1: So in this particular case, what you're saying, I guess what I'm hearing and what I think our audience should really understand is that they weren't really interested in if the people that purchased the business succeeded or not. As long as they got their money, they were going to be happy. They were going to move on to something else.
2: Yes. And again, once you strip those five guys out of there, There really wasn't much of a business left and it was hard for them to to understand the concept of transferring an ongoing entity you know a a business of ongoing concern and that's really what we're talking about doing when you when you talk about business transactions and business transfers we're talking about transferring a business of ongoing concern assets is not what makes a company it's the customers that come through that door. It's what provides uh, revenue to the bottom line, and all of that, is, you know. So the you know the owners and, and the customer base and all that is 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 critical to an ongoing concern. When you strip all that out of there, you you really are not selling anything.
1: So what happened in this situation? I mean, you obviously had some concerns. They kind of wanted, as you you basically said, they wanted to. Cut and run. What did you do? I mean, do you normally take on a client that has that type of attitude? And if they're not going to be around, what do you have? As you said several times there, how did you handle this situation?
2: Okay. So, what we normally do is we normally make a recommendation, and that recommendation is rehabilitative in nature. So, we recommended to them that they need to have have a succession plan in place so that when new owners come in, there's talent across the board in the in the key uh, management areas that could help support that company Um, they didn't want to hear that um, and they weren't interested in in succession planning they weren't interested in grooming people to take their roles Um, so you know that kind of that kind of left us with the idea that that maybe they just wanted to cut and run
1: so even a business that's doing 28 million dollars in revenue they real when you kind of boil it down to what's going to be left after they're gone, there really wasn't much of a business there. I mean, all those customers, you said the sales and marketing guy probably had all the relationships. And when he's gone, who knows what's going to happen to those clients, especially if there's a little bit of concentration in those customers.
2: Well, that's true. I mean, even, even when you look at strategics, um, strategic companies who, or or even uh, some private equity groups that that are looking at a roll up or something like that, they may provide some talent, but they still want to see that there's sufficient talent that's left with the organization um, when they take it over. And so this was a real red flag for us, and we just it just wasn't a fit. We suggested some um, you know some opportunities for them to. Take a, a couple of years to, to transition to organization so that it would be more appealing to the marketplace.
1: But it sounds like they weren't interested in doing that.
2: Uh, they had no interest in that. So, so <laughs> we, just to, we just had to part ways and, and move on.
1: So I guess the big takeaway here is if there is not a management hierarchy in place, a management infrastructure to facilitate the succession of management to the new owner, the probability of finding the right buyer that's going to pay the price the sellers want is probably not very likely. And you would probably spend a lot of work and effort and time and not get a deal done. That was kind of your conclusion, right?
2: Yeah, sure. And, and you know, new ownership could bring a, bring a CEO that can provide the rudder, so to speak. But new owners aren't going to want to replace the CFO the sales marketing guy, the operations guy, you know, all the other critical pieces. Because you that's just too many pieces to take, to, to have to replace.
1: Yeah, what are they really buying? <laughs> if there's no one there left, uh, you know, all of the, the brains of the business that made it a $28 million business goes out the door. What are you really buying? That's correct. Well, that's a great takeaway, Gerald. That's kind of a unique story that we haven't really had something that uh, illustrates that principle of management hierarchy so dramatically is that there was so much concentration in the owners of the business. We often hear one owner being the person that is difficult to replace But they generally have other people that stay with the company, and in this particular case, that wasn't going to be the situation. Well, that's a great uh, takeaway.
2: Yeah, almost every interview that I've ever been involved in from the buy side, one of the first questions they ask is, how critical is the owner? Does he have any management support left when, when we take it over? And the answer is no, 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 and no they will lose interest immediately.
1: Their answer is going to be no. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 and no. And no, yes, yes, no. Well, that's great. That's a great insight. Really approach from a little bit different than some of the other transactional stories we've had here on the podcast. So I appreciate you sharing that, Gerald. Well, let's talk about another transaction that maybe from a fairly good sites company that maybe had a similar issue that just couldn't get sold.
2: Right. Well, one of the other things that we measure for before we get on the dance floor, so to speak, with a client Is client concentration Uh, think about this for a second you know if if any company has more than say 15 even 20% of their revenues going to one client and that company loses that one client they're dead
1: yeah I mean in theory I mean all the profitability could go right out the door with that one client
2: sure I mean you'll never make margin and you know, you'll, you have a hard time making payroll. Uh, you'll be robbing Peter to pay Paul. Your balance sheet will get disrupted. I mean, you could just think of all the—it's the, like a domino effect. You lose that one client. So we, so we came across this one company one time, um, and they were a tortilla company here locally in Texas,
1: like Mexican tortillas, right? That's
2: right. They made. They made uh, flour tortillas is what they did. And um, they were a, about a $35 million company.
1: Well, that's a lot of tortillas.
2: That's a lot of tortillas. And, you know, who knew <laughs> there was that kind of money in, in tortillas, right?
1: Well, somebody's got to eat them.
2: Well, they're getting sold. So, and so we, uh, we went out to meet with them and we told them, well, before we agree to engagement, we're going to sit down and do a little feasibility analysis and so we got all their information, got all their data, and then one of the things we noticed almost immediately after we received all of their, their financial statements and things, wow, well, these margins are extremely low.
1: So what were they actually pulling to the bottom line? I mean, $35 million is a pretty good-sized company. They were
2: just under $2 million in EBITDA, which is extremely low. And uh, we wanted to understand that.
1: So that's down like 3 4%, 5%, you know, that range. I mean, a lower, low single-digit net on that, right? That's not, that's not a lot.
2: It's pretty risky because if you, you, if you have a hiccup somewhere along the way, it'll eat right into that margin. So we wanted to understand, and we interviewed them, and we, we, got, we kind of got to the bottom line. Um, and the bottom line was, well, we're working with a national chain. And that national chain is about 97% of our revenue.
1: Let's rewind that last statement. What did you say? 97% of their $35 million with with one customer? With one one
2: customer. (laughs) They're a national brand.
1: Now, I have never heard of concentration at that level. You know, 60 70% maybe, but 97%. Well...
2: This, this particular brand actually has a habit of doing this to smaller, when I say smaller, I mean, you know, they're not publicly traded companies. So, so if you have a local presence, you may be doing fairly well, but if you want to get in with these guys, you have to eat your margin. They'll get you the volume, but you have to eat, you have to eat margin.
1: I am still glassy eyed over the fact that 97%. I got out my calculator here. That's $34 million out of the $35 million going to one customer.
2: Well, they allowed them to sell tortillas to restaurants, but not to other purveyors like them.
1: So they had a million dollars scattered over a dozen, two dozen, three dozen other people, but 97%. Holy smoly!
2: Well, they had it written in their contract, and so the contract stated that if they tried the contract, if they contracted with another purveyor, it was grounds for terminating their agreement.
1: Such as another grocery chain. Can I ask who the company that had the their hands around their neck was?
2: <laughs> you probably shouldn't say.
1: Okay, well, a national retailer that's known for squeezing margins out of their vendors, so I can guess... Probably who we're talking about, but we won't mention it here. But ninety-seven percent, thirty-four million dollars out of thirty-five, and they had it written in their contract. If they sold to Trader Joe's or Safeway or here in the West Coast or another grocery chain, they were done. Contract canceled.
2: They were done. And, and you know, we didn't even we didn't even know that that was a stipulation until we we started digging in a little bit, and we said, "Listen, we have some sales and marketing consultants." Who could help you dilute that concentration we can help you create more distribution channels and all that through these there's some of our contacts and that's when they stopped this and they said no you can't because we're not allowed to and that <laughs> And that's when we realized, well, what are you talking about? What
1: you're saying there, Gerald, is you're an advisor. You're trying to help folks to position their company at some point in time. They can have a successful exit. So what you recommended is spot on that you let's expand your customer base. Let's expand your distribution channels. And they say, time out. Time out. We can't do that because we're contractually obligated that we can't do anything else but sell to you. <laughs>
2: well, and you know, it really heart went out to, to these guys because we were, there really wasn't anything left that we could do for them at this level.
1: Well, if someone were to come in and attempt to buy that company, I don't know of a bank or a lender on the planet that would finance that loan.
2: I don't know of a buyer that would buy it.
1: <laughs> you don't have the financing, you don't have the buyer, you don't have anything you can sell. Well, that's an extreme case of dramatic, draconian customer concentration. Customer concentration is one of those things that comes up quite frequently in our discussions here on the podcast, but nothing, Gerald. This is a all-time record of customer concentration i mean there really wasn't a business they were just a appendage on the hand of this big retailer they weren't independent
2: the advisor that went out with me on this one uh, we were just flabbergasted that that they had that that much concentration we just we couldn't even get our
1: head around from the surface 35 million dollars selling tortillas what a great business you know <laughs> until until you Find out what's under the hood, huh? So I guess what we're really talking about here is a big takeaway for those listening is uh, it's not really about the revenue. $35 million is great. It's about the type of revenue that you have. In this case, it's the wrong type of revenue.
2: Well, most buyers, when we we talk to them, when we start getting into the the nitty-gritty of analyzing a company with, with most buyers and investors, one of the things they really really delve into is what is the client concentration like where where are the clients coming from and and do we have any percentage that's higher than five or seven percent we hear that number all the time five or seven percent hop and you know, you have more than five or seven percent concentrated one client and if it is why you know so so it's a real issue for buyers they 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 have a real heartburn over heavy concentrations into one
1: yeah. And if you put yourself on the other side of the table, you're buying a company. It's all about risk. One of the big issues of risk is concentration of customers, vendors, a key employee that can't survive without, you know, those type of issues are, are huge. And so in your role as an advisor and you find someone that has 10, 15, 20%, you work with them over time to get that concentration down so that It doesn't become an issue in due diligence. You know, it's just something that you can be checked off that no one is more than five, seven, eight percent of revenue concentration. And if you don't have that, then it's an issue. And in this case, didn't have a company to sell is what you're telling me. Well, that's true.
2: And and I think the the overall takeaway from, from the first two examples, the business services and this tortilla company, is that the time to go to market isn't when you think you're ready. I mean, really, what most of your listeners should probably consider that if they're contemplating an exit in the next few years, they probably ought to take a year, to to maybe maybe three years, to analyze the company and try to decide what their factors, what what the critical factors are and, and try to prepare it to go to market.
1: It's all about planning and preparation and positioning. When it comes down, the more you do of those three things, the better off you're going to be. And someone like you, that's what you do. That's where your core competency and expertise is—is is getting people down that positioning and preparation role. Well, Gerald, uh, you're going to go down in my book as uh, in the the Hall of Fame uh, of the most customer concentration ever. You know, Thirty-four out of thirty-five million dollars with one customer. So I don't—I doubt. I very seriously doubt we're going to top that one. Anyway, so let's move on, Gerald. Uh, Let's talk about a couple of transactions you've been involved in over the last 20 years in the M&A field. All transactions have their problems, but let's talk about something that really worked out well for those entrepreneurs that were exiting their business. Share a story like that with us today.
2: Well, when when you and I first started talking about this podcast, one of the ones that came up to mind almost immediately was... Was um, and it, it has a real good moral at the end of it. It was a compounding pharmaceutical company that we had taken on about 15 years ago. Now, they had, they had uh, three business partners. All three were uh, were pharmacists in training. They all owned their own pharmacies outside of this company that they were partnered in. And it was a very successful compounding pharmacy because what they did was they they found a way to solve a pain point. For their customer base their customers were hospitals uh, nursing homes hospices uh, they had if I recall they had some physical therapy uh, practices that were thrown into the mix and but but any institution that requires compounded pharmacies not pharmaceuticals now for those who aren't real familiar with what compounding pharmacies are uh, they're rare first of all
1: talk a little bit about what a compounding pharmacy actually does i i haven't actually heard of it before so that's the new one on me
2: i think in the old old days they used to call them apothecaries but every person has different ailments i mean, everyone who needs pharmaceuticals may not necessarily be able to use something off the shelf what they may need is maybe a combination of different types of pharmaceutical medications.
1: Customized.
2: Customized, right. Okay. So what a compound pharmacy does is they actually have a special license and they have to go through special training where they can actually go and take different ingredients and formulate a, a, a compounded pharmaceutical product for a specific patient. And this happens at a much higher larger degree than most people understand and usually where you see that is going to be in places like in a hospital where a doctor would come see a patient and say look you know we can't just give him hydrocodone this guy you know he's got some other issues we need a compounded product here and so they'll, they'll reach out to compounding pharmacies and say, look we, we need we need this mixture And and the standard off-the-shelf product has too much chidrocodeine and not enough of this other, whatever. So the problem in that industry, though, is it takes time, typically, to compound.
1: Yeah, everything is custom. Every order is custom. It takes time, yeah.
2: So what they did was they said, look, why don't we find a way to not only, a process to not only compound quicker, but we're going to guarantee that our clients will get their compounded pharmaceuticals delivered same day. And that's what they did so they had really um, a, a large network of hospitals and, and nursing homes and hospices where they delivered to on a daily basis they, they created their own distribution network they created a delivery system that was you know arm's length um, and they were growing the company was growing every year um, the the three partners were, were really not involved in the business well they were involved in the in the to the extent that they were providing guidance but they had pharmacists on staff who uh, filled all the scripts who were compounding and filling the scripts they had uh, entire staff that that would, you know, prepare and package. They had the staff that would, they had a separate NTV that was a logistics company that would distribute all the the pharmaceuticals.
1: So they were kind of like the dominoes of the pharmacy business. They had guaranteed delivery. Yeah,
2: they, they really were. So it was just a beautiful model.
1: And it sounds like when you're doing custom compounding of pharmaceuticals, that it was probably fairly profitable because they could charge a premium.
2: They had spectacular margins, <laughs> just phenomenal margins yes you're right they, they could because no one else could get it there in the same day really i mean it's the you know very few other compounding pharmacies could actually get it there next day
1: and it sounds like they weren't integral to the business they had their staff and trained pharmacists on staff that would go with the business
2: no it was just a beautiful company you know
1: all the way around what you're telling me gerald is that they didn't sell 97 of their pharmaceutical goods <laughs> to one hospital
2: <laughs> no no and, and they didn't and the three partners when they exited didn't didn't take the business with them
1: <laughs> yeah
2: oh yes yes so um, okay so so we went out and met with them we just thought we loved it as a team we, we thought it was a great fit for us and we agreed to engagement we took them to market and literally within under a month you know three weeks maybe we had, we had over 10 offers on the company. Now, remember, they were listed with two other firms before us. Uh, but what we had, we had 10 offers roughly within a matter of about three weeks. We ran a cycle.
1: Were these offers from financial buyers, strategics, private equity, all the above, what?
2: Almost exclusively, they were private equity and strategic. And so we ran the cycle. and and the price just kept going up and up, and and the terms kept getting better and better.
1: That's interesting when you say running a cycle. It's kind of like a private auction is what you're talking about. They just submit their bids.
2: Well, we finally had to just put a deadline, but basically, yes, that's what it is. It's it's informing all the, the interested parties that there's multiple offers.
1: That's an interesting comment that you made there. Not only the price was going up, but the terms started to get better, which means what? more cash up front less carry uh, better interest rate
2: yeah more cash up front yeah i believe cash is king so i'm always going to try to get more cash at the closing table so the cash component was getting higher at the closing table we're talking about relaxation of the deal terms for example uh, less indemnification for our clients less um uh, you know shorter terms on the reps and warranties um you know so it would be things like that so you have a lot of deal terms as well as the financial components. So you got higher offers, you get uh, more cash at closing, you get a relaxation of the reps and warranties.
1: So would you say, Gerald, that it's not all about cash? Sometimes it's as much about terms as it is about cash when you're negotiating a deal that the terms become as important as the cash sometimes?
2: I'd rather take $2 million in cash than, than $10 million with a nickel down. <laughs> so yes. Right. Deal terms are, are highly critical. The structure, well, there's, all, there's so many components. I mean, there's just not enough time to talk about one there. Here's another issue, is that we, we spend an inordinate, inordinate amount of time trying to structure tax mitigation for our clients. But that's a critical factor, too. And in some cases, particularly if you're a C corporation, it could mean as much as th- a third of the total price of the business. Now, would you rather give that to the government, or would you rather put that in your bottom line? So we we have ways that we can help mitigate the tax liability and weave it into the structure of the deal. That's one area I would have to say most sellers don't think about until it's too late, because you have to address those issues at the time of the LOI, because once the LOI is accepted and then we, we, we roll into a contract, it's too
1: late. LOI is a letter of intent. So just a comment on that. Given the current environment that we're in with a new political administration here and the orientation and the philosophy of uh, higher taxes and especially looking at what is perceived by a lot of people as preferences to the upper 1% giving preferable treatment on capital gains of reducing or substantially and in some cases aggressively minimizing the capital gains treatment and increasing that rate, uh, it's going to become a bigger issue in the future than it is today. I mean, by all measures over the time that capital gains treatments have been you know, historically available, we're on the lower end of what capital gains have been. And we're going to see that go to 24, 25, 28% capital gains tax, and maybe as high as 35% with capital corporate rates going up. So we just don't know what that landscape is going to be like. But one thing that we probably can say though, and let me ask you, I mean, you deal with this every day. Uh, is it a fair statement to say that tax treatment is going to be more critical in the future than it has been in the past? And that's going to have to be addressed.
2: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, tax treatment is always a critical factor, uh, regardless of administration. You know, we, we experienced some, some, some pretty nice times over the last few years in terms of the tax treatment. You still, as a seller, need to take into consideration what those tax implications are, and it does affect how you're going to structure the deal.
1: Let me ask you from a philosophical point of view, are buyers not interested on in what the seller actually nets, or is that going to ripple through that the prices are going to be pushed up? because of the tax that uh, they're just going to be an offset or they're going to be asking for more on the selling price or are sellers just going to have to take less in the future of what they put in their pocket what's your personal view on that
2: uh, i think it depends on the market in other words and, and it's actually bared itself out that way for example uh when i entered the market we were it was a pretty robust time for m&a
1: so you're talking 20 years ago
2: yes and so we were getting um we're getting some pretty robust offers. Nothing like we've seen in the last four or five years, really. I mean, the last several years was just amazing. But, but we have, you know the multiples were high, uh, deal terms were good, and then we went through a cycle where it became more of a buyer's market. And so when it becomes a buyer's market, then the seller can't ask as much uh, in terms of, you know, he kind of needs to take what's, what the market avails itself. Now, over the last four years or so, it was such a seller's market and it still is right now it still is a seller's market uh, multiples were as high as i've ever seen it it was amazing um, deal terms uh, we had buyers coming in literally paying 100 percent cash okay i'm not kidding about that and we've had uh so not only were the multiples higher we're getting a lot more cash at closing we had buyers coming in saying look one year we'll cap we'll cap all reps and warranties out of here you know uh, we won't even ask for indemnification <laughs> so we went through a period where it was definitely a seller's mark so i would say that it just depends on the
1: market okay well that's good insight so let's move on to wrapping up this transaction is that did this deal get closed the deal was
2: really really beautiful and smooth but but here's what happened okay we had an attorney on the sell side not by our choosing, but it was, was a personal friend of, the, of one of the partners who was a generalist. He was not an M&A attorney. We recommended an M&A attorney, but they said, no, we're going to stick with this guy.
1: So just for proper context here, so you're saying that the attorney involved on the seller side was a personal friend to one of the owners. Correct. And his background was not M&A. Correct. It was kind of general law, contract law.
2: Correct. And so we, we got to a point in the negotiations um, where we were getting to the contracting and the buy side attorney recommended uh, certain reps and warranties, which in our experience was standard protocol. The limits, the, you know, the requisites, everything was fairly standard. There were a couple of things we had a little heartburn on, they changed it. But, but the general crux of it was fine. The attorney for the seller, though, applied contract law, not MA standards.
1: Two different worlds.
2: Two different worlds. And and just said, We're not, I'm not going to allow my client to accept that, period. Just dug his heels in. And so what happened was um, I convinced the buyer and the sellers to hire a third party MA attorney to clear the loggerhead.
1: So this is someone that had no skin in the game just to take a look at what was reasonable and fair. Totally neutral. Totally neutral. Okay, well, that's a good idea.
2: So this attorney came with a wealth of experience. uh, You know, 95% of his book of business was nothing but M&A. And he agreed with the buy side, which is what we did. We agreed with the buy side too, that their reps and warranties were actually standard and normal, and should be acceptable.
1: So they're basically saying that the seller's attorney, who's the friend of one of the owners, is all wet, doesn't know what he's doing, and screwing up the deal and dragging it out.
2: Yeah, he got his, he got his ego bent. He spent the next nine months trying to sabotage the deal, literally trying to sabotage the deal. Every time we get to the, close to the finish line.
1: On the buy side, there was an M&A attorney that was experienced, right?
2: Correct. M&A team. Uh, they had a team of attorney team okay. i guess team of attorneys
1: so who was the lead attorney what type of person was that
2: well it was a very experienced young lady that really knew her stuff she was very polished and and was not combative at all and uh i don't know if this you know affected the the sell side attorney or not
1: i'm just curious i maybe i shouldn't ask this question but in the me too world did the seller's attorney have a problem with a woman attorney
2: we felt like he felt He was emasculated by this lady. And so he spent nine months trying to sabotage the deal.
1: So we had a couple of things going on here. He didn't know what he was doing. Plus, he was not thrilled with the woman being on the other side that knew more than he did.
2: All right. So what's worse, being ignorant or stubborn?
1: (laughs) both. (laughs) When it comes to attorneys, that's a pretty potent combination. Yeah. So this dragged on for nine months. How did the deal? Did the deal get closed or did it blow up and go away?
2: So here's what happened. Uh, I I took our lead lead advisor with me and we drove and we set an appointment with the sellers, the partners, and no attorneys involved. And we just basically told them, we believe that this attorney that you have engaged is the wrong guy. And not only that, but we think he's sabotaging the deal. If you do not remove this attorney, we're going to pack up and leave and we're taking our we're taking the buyers off the table. We're not going to go down this path any longer with this guy.
1: That's pretty tough medicine.
2: Well, sometimes you have to shake the tree for the fruit to fall, right?
1: So they had a decision to make. What happened? So what they did
2: was they hired a third-party M&A investment banker and asked to look at the deal.
1: So this is another specialist they brought in to re-verify the already verified if this was a reasonable deal or not.
2: Exactly. And and the the third-party investment banking firm said... Kong and Trinity are correct. Uh, there's no reason why this deal shouldn't have closed by now. And you, you need to remove this attorney. He's making a mountain out of a molehill out of things that you shouldn't even be arguing over. Um, so they did. They, they, they finally made the move. They removed the attorney. So
1: how long did it take once the attorney is gone? And they got a good attorney in, I assume, an M&A guy. How long did it take to get the deal done?
2: He came in, and within, I'm not kidding, in less than two weeks we closed the deal
1: after nine months. Wow.
2: Well, yeah. So what's the lesson learned here? <laughs> get it. You know, if you're going to try to go to market, get an m guy. you will come out a lot cheaper in the long run. You're not going to be spending money arguing over things that don't matter. You're not going to be paying an attorney to do research on things that he should already know, because that's what ends up happening when you hire a generalist. Uh, they go and do all the M&A research on things, and then they bill you for it, and it makes it easy for both sides. And there are times where we've actually asked the buy side, hey, do you, is your attorney an M&A guy?
1: Well, I would imagine from your chair that you sit in, if you find out the attorney on the buy side is a generalist and a corporate law attorney, transaction attorney, you just may not even consider that offer because you know where it's going.
2: Well, it it just makes it easier all the way through because now you have two attorneys who know what the germane issues are. They know what they should and shouldn't be digging their heels on. Uh, they understand the process. They know what the reps and warranty standards are. They know, you know, they understand the process. They, they, they have a good grasp of the
1: issue. Well, I think this is a great example of hire the right advisors. As you said, in the long run, uh, they may be a little bit more expensive, but you'll save money in the long run. And I heard uh, someone tell me one time, getting the right advisors, whether it's an attorney or anyone else on your team, you don't want a bicycle mechanic working on your Porsche. It's just not going to have a good outcome. So while they both might be mechanics, their level of competency and expertise is just not in the same realm or world. And so hiring the right advisors, attorneys, M&A advisors, financial people to surround yourself with is, is the big takeaway here, I think. All right, Gerald, uh, why don't we move on to one of the other transactional stories here, and we'll talk a little bit about a deal that kind of went well and had good outcome for the owner of the business that you represented. Tell us a little bit about who owned the business and how long they had been in and how they got started in the business.
2: Well, Marvin, we, had a, we represented a company I don't know, I guess it was probably seven, eight years ago. And they specialized in, it was, a, it was a, actually a female-owned company. She, she founded it on it, uh, but what they did was they specialized in finishing work for print services. So um, so a commercial printer typically would just print material, but if it needed embossing or stamping or, you know, you know, you know any foil stamping or die cutting, film lamination or folding and binding and, you know, adding fugitive glue, that type of stuff. The the large commercial printers don't typically do that work on their own. They usually uh, farm this out to a a separate entity that's kind of in the back room. So the clients would never know about this third part, this this other company doing this special work. So that's what they did. Um, And so there, it was just really nice beautiful company they they had a great client base most of their clients were either advertising and marketing companies or they were commercial printers um they did not have any client concentration issues they had management and support across the entire organization so uh, so this this lady really did a great job positioning her organization um you know so so we took it to market we had several uh, offers on it, and you know, of course, we we found the best offer that we could, and we we you know, went down the the process of the letter of intent, went through due diligence, so so everything was going absolutely smooth. But the one problem that pre- presented itself is it took a really long time for the loan to bind the loan, uh, so we had to keep extending the expiration period on the contract, waiting for the bank to to finalize the loan. And, and so it was really peculiar because it, it shouldn't take this long. So I still remember how it all came down It was right before Christmas, the bank finally <laughs> came to us and they said, uh, or they came to the, the buyers and they said, look, we, we can do the deal, but we need 35% equity injection from the seller in the form of a seller note.
1: So what you're saying is that their their Christmas present that year was they have to leave 35% on the table, and that would be considered equity from their perspective so that they're better protected. Correct. And there wasn't really any reason that that should be because it was a great company, had good cash flow. Everything else was in place.
2: Everything was in place. They great, Like you said, great management, no, no client concentration issues. They were well-capitalized. Their they, equipment could... Could probably could have probably handled double the volume. So, whoever came in, to, you know, when the buyers came in, took over the company, uh, they, there wasn't going to be a large capital expenditure outlay to double the the, the, the volume. Uh, and and that's on one ship. In addition, they could have ran two ships, so if they ran two shifts, they probably could have tripled the volume. See, so it, it was well capitalized. I mean no reason for the owners to carry that money so what we told the sellers I mean the buyers you got the wrong bank you got the wrong guys in place here because you know from all all of the attributes of this organization there's no reason for them to, to do this and, and to have to carry 35% equity and the seller so so we the, the seller was so frustrated she wanted to back out the deal and I said look Let's, let's do this. I asked the buyer and the seller, if, if you're okay with me trying to introduce a lender, bring a lender to the table. So we brought a lender that had experience in B2B, in, in M&A, doing B2B transactions, and uh, had a depth of experience in machining and manufacturing because th- this company had about 80 machines on the planet. And they said, okay, let's give it a run. So we did that. The bank came in and they closed the deal in, in 45 days.
1: I'm just curious, what was the carry back or the equity injection that they wanted to, in the company? Did it go, come down from 35%, which I imagine it did?
2: Seller so carried 5%. 5%.
1: An 85% reduction in amount of money that was going to be required just because you had people that were experienced in this field, new M&A and in the B2B market, and they could perceive what the risk really was instead of trying to overcompensate for the risk.
2: Well, the real moral of the story is that not all banks and not all lenders are created equal. In our experience, some some lenders, they love retail. Some won't touch retail with a 10-foot pole. Some lenders love machining and manufacturing. Some love the energy sector. Uh, Some won't touch any of those. So when it comes to to putting a deal together, uh, it it is critical that we have the right funding mechanism in place that understands M&A, that understands The, the business nature of the, of the entity that's being acquired. So that um, we don't have some lopsided structure like we did here.
1: So the big takeaway, I guess, is that don't grab just any lender because they want to talk to you. Because all lenders are notorious for just saying, you know, we'll we'll do the loan, you know, before they've even analyzed or done any type of due diligence on you. They just don't want you to go shop the loan because they know there are other people out there. Yes. So lenders do have different preferences. Uh, you really need to look for someone, as what you've said. I think it was. Very important here. Someone that has experience in M and A knows your niche. Interview the lender. You aren't obligated to go with any specific one. Find one that's a good fit.
2: Well, and it is part of the due diligence process on the buy, on the sell side. The sell, you know, the buyers do due diligence, but the sellers do due diligence too. And part of the seller's due diligence is, hey, where is this money coming from, and do you have the right? Mechanisms in place to make this
1: happen. Right. Well, good advice. Well, this has been delightful, Gerald. I appreciate you taking the time. You obviously have a lot of experience. You've developed an internal process to identify those key components that a seller needs to prepare and position their business for. uh, Buyers are going to be looking for and you might as well get those things down because the questions are going to be asked. And if you have good answers, the transactions will go a lot smoother. So, I appreciate your time. Gerald, if someone wanted to reach out and get a hold of you down there in the Texas-Fort Worth area or any place around Texas, I guess, how would they reach out and get a hold of you?
2: Well, our domain is trinitytransactions.com. Phone number is 972-238-8400. Or they, if they get to the website, they can certainly make an, an, an inquiry on one of the fields.
1: Okay. Well, Cool. Well, you've uh, shared a lot of good insights here today, Gerald. I appreciate that. So this is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories, and we'll see you on the next episode.
0: Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember... Maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically, it takes planning.